I was 100 feet in the air. They had a motorcycle rigged off, off the side of the cliff. The bike is supposed to drop and explode. After Bruce swings over, grabs me, we swing back, the and the bike drops and explodes. We're hanging, holding onto the side of the cliff. The motorcycle has dropped and exploded, and the mountain is shale, and it's coming off in our hands. So if it wasn't for our backup tie, I wouldn't be talking to you today. Hi, I'm Sandy Gimpel, and you might remember me as the salt vampire on Star Trek, the episode Man Trap, and you're listening to Trek Untold. to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. This episode is going to go down in the history books as a very special Trek Untold. And I know I say that more than I want to because the internet demands that a host be very hyperbolic, but this time it's actually legit. Trekkies already know that technically the original Star Trek series had three pilots. There was The Cage with Jeffrey Hunter as Pike. Then there was Where No Man Has Gone Before with the first iteration of Shatner in the chair. And then, finally, the true series premiere from 1966, The Man Trap. This was the episode that brought us the crew we know and love to this day, almost 60 years after it first aired. So it's a great honor to announce this week's guest, a performer from that very same first episode, Sandy Gimpel. Sandy Gimpel and sci-fi go together like peanut butter and jelly, or a triple and space wheat. She's best known as the salt monster from The Man Trap, but she's also had a few other notable Trek roles that you'll hear about today that you probably weren't even aware of. Beyond Star Trek, she's been a stunt double for some serious heavy hitters in Hollywood and has some of the wildest stories I've ever heard from a stunt performer. When I tell you that I was on the edge of my seat for some of these tales and wondering how the heck she survived, I'm really not exaggerating. You're going to be shocked when you hear some of Sandy's stories. Beyond Star Trek, you've seen Sandy in films and shows like Evil Dead 2, Jingle All the Way, Airplane, Escape from New York, The Goonies, Twins, Commando, The Rock, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, Battlestar Galactica, The Stand, and even most recently, The Weird Al Yankovic Story. Because that's how recent she's still been doing stunts, and there's still so much more in a career that began the day Star Trek first hit the airwaves. And that's a story I can't wait for you guys to hear either. Sandy also has a new autobiography called Stunt Lady Falling for the Stars. So consider this interview a small taste of what her life and career has been like. And check out the show notes for this episode if you want to pick up that book after hearing this interview. We got a lot of stories to tell today and a lot of big falls to take. So let's cue up Sandy Gimpel and hear all about her time on Star Trek and everything else she's done in her six decades long career in stunts. But before we get into this week's episode, I have to ask you, are you following Trek Untold on social media yet? You can find us over on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, all at Trek Untold, one word with no spaces. You can also become a Patreon supporter for this podcast over at patreon.com slash trekuntold. 
Here, you can directly contribute to keeping this show running at full power for as low as a few bucks a month. If you do this, you'll have early access to new episodes, the ability to ask future guests questions, check out exclusive merchandise, and other special benefits. We've also got an official merch store and an Amazon store filled with Star Trek goodies. So if you want to rock a Trek Untold t-shirt to the next con you're going to, or order something Star Trek related for yourself or someone else, please use the links in the show notes to help us help you. Shout out to our show sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, makers of fine 3D printed Star Trek inspired toys and accessories for collectors of all kinds. But you'll hear more about them later on. Now without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. And now joining me on the other side of the screen, we have a pioneer in the stunt industry and certainly one of the most respected stunt performers out there, someone who has been that way for many, many decades. Today, we are welcoming Sandy Gimpel to Trek Untold. Sandy, how's it going today? It's been really nice. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being willing to come on the show. You know, I had a chance to meet you not too long ago at Trek Long Island. And uh, you just have this amazing energy about you. And I knew I had to get you on the show. So, uh, you know, and I love talking to stunt performers, especially. So it's really cool to have somebody who's been there for many decades, seeing how that world has changed and evolved. Yeah. <laughs> to put it subtly, yes. And uh, and by the way, congrats are in order to you, Sandy, because you just released your autobiography this year. Uh, yes. And that's called Stunt Lady Falling for the Stars. Yes, so, it is. That, um, you want, this is, there it is right there. There it is. Yay. I love it. I mean, it, I'm so proud of it. I can't tell you. And it only took me forever to get it written. <laughs> I mean, yeah, writing an autobiography is a real serious undertaking. I mean, what was it like for you to just go back in time and basically look at your entire life through this format and then say, hey, world, look at all this? You know, it was it was really strange because everybody had been asking me to write a book for years now. And then I started it and I let it go and I wouldn't do it. And I finally went, my daughter said to me, mom, just write the book, please. So I sat down and I'm the kind of person that once you start something, I have to finish it. I mean, for real, I don't care if it's what it is. I mean, I'll work until God knows what time at night just to finish it. And I, so I sat down and started writing and literally started, I thought I'll start at the beginning and I'll write it like I talk so I can do that. And so I left, there's a lot of stuff I left out, but, um, then I had, um, Jason Davis, who's an editor, edit it for me because I can't spell and my punctuation is forget. <laughs> but, um, he was wonderful and, um, he put all the pictures in. I sent him all my pictures and he got them all in there and he put some call sheets in there and my awards that I got. And so it, was, it came out. I'm very proud of the way it came out and um, it's on Amazon and it's also on my website, sandragimpel.com. Everybody check it out. We're going to have links in the show notes for places where you can pick it up. And I highly recommend it. Uh, so Sandy, we got a lot of stuff to talk about today and eventually we're going to get to our Star Trek, but I want to get, I guess you can call it maybe a little bit of a sneak preview of what's in your book. Uh, and I'd love to get some kind of background info on you today. So uh, I'd love to start with where you grew up, who your parents were, <laughs> and what little Sandy wanted to be when she grew up? Oh, boy. Well, I grew up in Los Angeles, California. And um, my mom wanted me to go to school and be a teacher. My sister did that. Um, it was really funny. She started us taking dance lessons, like, at three years old. Um, and basically, 
she kept me dancing because it kept me out of trouble. She <laughs> was like, I come home with black and blue marks and she'd say, Oh my God, what did you do to your leg? And I go, huh? What are you talking about? I didn't do anything. <laughs> I drove her crazy. I mean, her gray hairs came from me, but, um, daddy, um, in fact, my dad would go down to Muscle Beach in Venice, California and work out on the rings and he could actually do an iron cross. I, I never forgot that. I mean, he was so strong and, um, he, he was great and I wanted to be like my dad, you know, and, but I never thought of being in the movie industry. It never entered my mind. It just kind of happened. Well, how did that happen exactly? How did Sandy find her way into Hollywood? And was that through dancing? Through dancing. It sure was. I, um, I went two years to college and got my applied arts degree in, in theater arts and applied actually for the next two years to go to school and there was a park in um, Santa Monica called Pacific Ocean Park. And they had, a, it was a big theme park. They had all kinds of rides and all kinds of stuff. And Westinghouse was one of their sponsors. And what they had done was you couldn't get into the park without going through the Westinghouse uh, exhibit. And so Jack and Jill would take you through the exhibit. They danced through the forest and show you the washer and dryer. And then they danced through the house and show you all the appliances. And I went and auditioned for that and got that job. And I had a three-year contract with Westinghouse. And all my friends, became, you know, were dancers. And I knew everybody. And everybody was going out on auditions for different things. And so I, I didn't think much about it. And I went, I want to go on this audition. It was for uh, West Side Story. The original West Side Story. So I went on the audition and I got picked as a jet. And Westinghouse would not let me out of my contract and I couldn't do the show. Hmm. So I finished the I finished my contract with Westinghouse and I went on another audition for a movie that was called The Pleasure of His Company with Fred Astaire and Debbie Reynolds and got picked for that. And actually in my book, it tells you how I got picked. It was very crazy and interesting but i got picked to dance with on the show and you know it's interesting you don't know how you, where your life's going to take you you really don't i mean i ended up doubling debbie reynolds for the rest of her entire life mm. and at that time whoever i never would have thought of that um but anyway we finished that show and that which got me into the movie industry at that time, there was a Screen Extras Guild and a Screen Actors Guild. And so your dancers in your background were in Screen Extras Guild. And um, Central Casting was casting all of the background players and the dancers. And um, I ended up going on an audition for Clambake with Elvis Presley. <laughs> and got that job. For some reason, he liked me. <laughs> and I ended up doing 15 pictures with him. I became one of his five dancers. And um, yeah, I wanted to ask about that, in fact, because, you know, Elvis <laughs> is the king after all. I mean, I've, I don't think I've had too many folks who cross paths between Star Trek and Elvis. So, I mean, I'd love to hear any tales you got about the king. You know, and you know, he was a big Star Trek fan. I've heard some things about that. Yeah. Watch. He used to watch all of the Star Trek movies and everything. I mean, he was a big Star Trek fan, which is. Kind of crazy because so am I and, you know, and doing, you know, the Star Trek shows. But I didn't do those until after I worked with him. 
Yep. You know, the last show I did with him was um, the pleasure was uh, was um, change of habit, and um, that was the last movie that he did. You know, we had we had a huge party when that was done, and um, in those days, you never you you didn't carry your cameras. You weren't allowed to have a camera on the set. You didn't have cell phones, so you didn't. And you didn't ask for things because it just didn't, you know, you didn't say, oh, I need an autograph or I need a picture. But at the party, he gave us all albums and he was and he handed out his picture. You know, I've got like three pictures with him and I had them in my hand and everybody was asking for his autograph. And I walked up and said, can I have an autograph too? <laughs> and I'm embarrassed to ask because we were so close. And um he signed one of the pictures for me and said, Sandy, nice working with your kid. And Elvis Presley, of course, he signed it. And um I have it on my wall in my in my hall of shame right now. <laughs> <laughs> but um he was he was amazing. And we got it was like I was one of the boys, which was really interesting. I hung out with Joe Esposito and Charlie Haig and uh, Jerry Schilling, you know, so I ended up kind of like one of the guys and which was kind of nice because the girls that kind of dated him or were interested in him would come and go. And I ended up staying, sticking around because it wasn't that kind of relationship. And I mean, I went and played softball with them. I got to hang out in the rehearsal halls. I got to go to the house of Bel Air and play games. Um, I remember my daughter was going to play the guitar and I had asked him what kind of guitar I should buy. And he said, you're not buying a guitar and walked over and gave me one of his <laughs> and he gave me the case for it. And everything. I still have it in the house today. Wow. I mean, there's no way to tell it was his, but it was, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, all, all the things I've read about him, it seems like he's the kind of guy that uh, when it came to work, it wasn't like he was maybe a Martinet. It was more just like when he came to work, he came to play. I mean, would you say that was accurate? Absolutely. He, you know, he was an interesting guy. He was very shy. He liked having the same people around all the time, made him feel more secure. One of the nicest people you'll, you would ever meet in your life. I mean, generous and kind. And I mean, we would break for lunch and they'd bring lunch in and we'd all sit on the floor and he'd play the guitar, the piano, and we'd have lunch and we'd all sit and sing songs. And so he, he was just always up and happy and nice. And it was a pleasure to be on those sets. And there's a story in my book about him and Bill Bixby, who are very good friends. And Bix and I were very good friends. And I was working on, um, what was that name? It was a TV series that Bix did. We were all at MGM. Um, Portia Bavetti's father. And um, there's a story about what happened with with him and I and Big Son a lot that day, which is was which was pretty funny. He was great. Yeah, we're gonna save that story about Bixby for folks who buy the book. That's how we do it on the show. <laughs> so Sandy, I read that you found your way into the world of stunt performing really kind of by accident. And that story also in fact relates to Star Trek. Uh so can you tell that story to us? It sure did. Um well when when Elvis stopped doing movies, they were looking for dancers that were five, 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 six to be lines. They had a lot of line work um, for the shows instead of just, you know, random dancers. And so I thought, you know, I'll just start doing some background work. And Cent uh, Central said, okay, great. We're going to send you um, 
on a show called Lost in Space. They're looking for a new stand-in for Bill Mummy, who's 11. All you have to do is stand there when they light the lights and set. They just need somebody that's right height, the right coloring. And I went, okay, cool. So they sent three of three girls. Well, I walk in on this audition and usually they just look at you and say, you know, you're fine. We'll take you. Well, there was like 10 guys sitting at a table asking all these questions. And they looked at me and said, you know, I asked about my dancing background and all of that. And one guy who I didn't know who he was at the time looked at me and said, you know, your, your timing and your, um, you know, your body pretty well. You know, your, your timing's pretty good. Your coordination must be good if you're a dancer. How about doing stunt work? Would you like to do that? And on a Bible, I'm telling you, I said, what's a stunt? I had <laughs> no idea what he was talking about. And he explained it to me. He was the stunt coordinator. His name was Paul Stater. He did everything for Irwin Allen. Um, that was one thing about Irwin Allen. He he kept his people working from one show to the next all the time. So he said to me, if you come to my gym in Santa Monica with the Stuntmen's Association guys, we will teach you how to do stunts and you can do the show while you're learning. And I mean, I, of course I said yes. I mean, this this does not happen today. This does not. So um, I got to do, my, you know, double him. And I got to play monsters on the show. And the interesting part about that show was when I was standing in, it was like a family. And the camera man would play games with me. He'd say, okay, where's your key light? You know, what are your parameters? What what lens do you think is on this on the camera now? So I kind of learned as I was there. I mean, I ended up doing voiceovers on the show. I did everything. And then Gene Roddenberry called over to talk to Paul because he was doing a, a space show. And he said, we're doing a pilot and we need somebody that can wear the prosthetics because people break out from this stuff. And he said, oh, we've got a great little girl. She's great. Sandy Gipel, we'll send her to you. We don't need her this week anyway. So that's how I got Star Trek. I got to play a Telosian in the cage on the original show. And the difference between the two shows was Gene Roddenberry never left the set. I mean, he was constant. Erwin Allen would come in and go out and if he he would come in and like Sobey Martin was one of our directors and somebody would see him coming in and somebody would go sit in his chair and Irwin Allen would come and you know direct for a while and then he'd leave but Gene Roddenberry was hands-on constant and um that was a real big difference between working on the two shows of course that show didn't sell because the network didn't like it for some reason and um, I guess it was, what, about a year later that uh, Lucille Ball said, I like the show. I'm going to put the bill for it. And we made the next show. But um, that's how Shatner got on the show hmm. because um, Jeffrey Hunter uh, couldn't come back for some reason. So they had, um, you know, uh, Shatner do it. And who would ever thought what happened to his career after that? Yeah. So this is the pilot of Star Trek. It's the Jeffrey Hunter pilot, right? And I'm curious to know, because I don't think I've talked to anybody who was part of that pilot. I mean, 
again, you are now someone who is familiar with the sci-fi world, having done Lost in Space. But looking at the set, looking at the people, looking at this guy, Leonard Nimoy and, and Jeffrey Hunter, a star. I mean, what did you think of all of this stuff that you've seen around you? What, how did you feel on the set? What did you think of the story? Did you think it had legs? Absolutely thought it had legs. I thought the story was pretty cool. Um, you got to understand, I was my 22, 23 years old, I think, at the time. And I thought it was, you know, a really cool concept. And it was different than Lost in Space because Lost in Space was geared more towards kids and family, where this wasn't. This was geared more as an adult kind of um, TV show. Everybody was incredibly nice on the show. And the, the costumes on that show were really interesting because if you remember, they, the Telosians talked telepath- telepathically. Yeah. And their veins in their head, when they would talk, would pump. They would yeah. like pulse. And today, you'd have a special effects man off to the side, you know, with a mechanism that would make that happen. But in those days, what they did was they had the veins with a tube that ran down your arm to a ball in your hand and you'd pump this little ball and the air would go up and make the veins move. And then they'd have somebody off stage reading the dialogue and you would have to pump. So it it came, you know, it it was like if you said a word, it would go pump, pump, pump. You know, it would look sound kind of look like you you were talking. But um, it was... The, the sets were all on stage, basically the same as Lost in Space. Um, they built the, you know, the mountains and the, and the background and all everything, the sand for the planet that was all done on stage. I mean, on space, we would, after a while, we started going out, um, to Paramount Ranch and, you know, certain places to shoot, um, like a river or something like that. But, 90% of everything was shot on stage on both the shows. Did you have a chance to spend any time with any of the cast members? Like, I know you were doubling for Meg Wiley as the Telosian, um, but did you get to hang out with Leonard Nimoy or Jeffrey Hunter at all in between scenes? You didn't really hang out. It was, you know, you kind of just, we worked, we were in a lot of the scenes, you know, and even just when Meg was walking by, I'm really walking with her. So, I was working a lot and no, you didn't get to hang out. It was, um, it was just different, you know? Um, I mean, you talk, you said hello, you said good morning, you talk to people, but you really, you know, um, I have pictures of Gene Roddenberry on the set with the Telosians separate, you know, um, pretty cool. I actually have one picture that was in Vegas, um, of the Telosians and Gene Roddenberry on the wall in Vegas and this picture had to be huge. It was one of like like a big poster. I mean even bigger than a poster. And I remember I was doing the Star Trek show in Vegas and I walked over to I walked back in and I went, oh my gosh, my poster of me in there is outside and somebody and my um manager that was with me said, come on, let's go back outside. And he took a picture of me pointing at myself at the picture and I, I printed it up and I have that picture with Gene and me, which is kind of cool because it shows me today and shows me when I was 22, 23 years old as a Telosian. But, um, 
the you know, and the you couldn't go outside. You couldn't do too much because the stuff was glued on you, and it took three hours to put all that makeup on. Hmm. So you were kind of busy, you know. I don't think it was what three of us Telosians plus yeah. Meg, and none of us really, you know, interacted too much. Um, I mean, I know the other people, and we said. You know, like I said, we said good morning and stuff like that, but we kind of really stayed on the set for lunch and everything. And do you remember who the makeup person was for you? Would that have been Fred Phillips or? Do you know the names? I can't remember. It might have, it might have been Craig Phillips because the, you know, the main makeup people were on the set constantly, you know, and after we did the, the three and a half hours of makeup, they were back on the set to make sure that it wasn't peeling the heat from, you know, and it was very hot on the sets that they weren't peeling off and that they were, you know, that the, you couldn't see the definition between the line of the bald cap and your face. So they were always doing touch-ups and, you know, making sure everything was right there. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D-printed Star Trek and sci-fi-inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, a Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Mego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the US, with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay what you want section, where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter UNTOLD10 at checkout for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using UNTOLD10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions, where something is only impossible until it happens. Hey, I'm Licia Nav, a.k.a. Ensign Sonia Gomez from Star Trek TNG. And now, Captain Sonia Gomez on Lower Decks with her own ship, the Archimedes. Yay! I finally got a promotion after 25 years. So anyway, I'm here to talk about drivebydogooders.org. It's a little charity I run where we go to the outskirts of Skid Row, and from our car windows, we hand out basic human essentials like water, wipes, cold stream cheese, socks, tarps, masks, t-shirts, things to keep people warm. So we just think that everyone deserves clean water, some protein, and a way to clean themselves, especially during Corona. We also hand out masks to those who really, really need it, who live in tents on the street, mainly the disabled and elderly who have a really hard time getting to services. And we do all of this with no agenda, just pure giving, no overhead. If you'd like to go to the website and donate, it's 100% tax deductible. And if you click on the donate button, you can go right to the $35 option and pick a signed autograph picture of either the Star Trek The Next Generation or Lower Decks or 
Total Recall, where I played the three-breasted mutant hooker on Mars, and uh, that's the X-rated version. Put in the comments section your address and anything you'd like me to write, and I'll personally inscribe it and mail it off to you immediately. And again, that's drivebydogooders.org. Ensign, I mean, Captain Sonia Gomez, signing off. Now, Paul Stater is a name that we talked about actually a lot on this show. And in fact, a lot of the folks who did the stunt performances on like TNG and Voyager DS9, a lot of them were trained by Paul. Uh, and so I'd love to hear a little bit about what you can remember about the way he taught you and some of the more valuable lessons that you picked up along the way from him. You know, he was amazing. Um, he was like one of our top stunt coordinators, you know, um, in the 60s and 70s. You know, we did, well, we did Lost in Space. and when we finished Lost in Space, we did Time Tunnel, Land of the Giants, Man from the 25th Century. I think those are the three three things that we did. And then we went on to do Poseidon Adventure and Towering Inferno. And then he did a, a snake movie. It was called or something like that. <laughs> but Paul did all of them. And he took all of, you know, his main stunt guys and me with him to do all these things. And... um very, very loyal man. And he was with the Stuntman's Association. So the guys were always going out, you know, and training with him. And the gym in Santa Monica was really cool because I learned how to fight. Um, I learned how to do high falls out of the skylight. <laughs> uh, um, it was crazy. I mean, he had a porta pit, which is a bunch of um, pieces of foam that are about this big. And they're all inside a mesh tied together and a ladder that went all the way up to the top of the skylight, which was probably 25 feet because it went to the ceiling and then it went up into the skylight. And he'd have you start low and just jump off the ladder into the bag. And then he'd have you go up higher and higher. And then when you got up high enough, he say, okay, now what you have to do is you have to tuck your head and land on your back. Hmm. And you're going, okay. <laughs> you're looking at this thing. And it's interesting because you just kind of tuck your shoulder and tuck your head and you kind of twist and you're down. And after the first time you go, okay, I can do that. And you do it, you know, he had to do it several more times. And then as when you're at the top, you know, when he has you come down, he says, wait, wait until you're, you know, clear and then turn. Well, he wanted you to wait as long as you could wait. And everything was fine until one one time, i never forget, I waited just a little tiny, tiny bit too long to, to turn over. And both of my knees hit my chest and knocked the wind out of me. And I never did that again. <laughs> I started twisting earlier. But... um yeah, and, and I learned how to sword fight with him. They had the guys there sword fighting. He had a boxing ring there. And all the professional stunt guys that were working were going there. So I learned from the best. And not only – I they, they were doing um, Batman and Robin on the stage, like, next to us. They were ne- The stages that were connected was Lost in Space and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. And then one of the – this was all at Fox – Mm-hmm. And then one of the other stages, they were doing Batman and Robin and um, Benny Dobbins, who was a top stunt coordinator. There were several at the time, guys, was doing that show. And 
he kept visiting us and I kept, I got to be good friends with him. And, um, Ronnie Stein was doing Voice of the Bottom of the Sea. So I knew him really well. Mickey Gilbert was working like crazy and he became one of my mentors actually. And, um, it was interesting. The guys were doubling girls at that time. And, um, that kind of Screen Actors Guild, they kind of made a stop to that. They had to ask five, I had to ask three girls that were qualified to do the stunt they were, they were going to do. And if all three turned it down, they were allowed to hire a guy. Other than that, they could not hire a guy to double a girl anymore. Mm. So that came around. But I was doubling kids. And there wasn't anybody but Bobby Porter, who was a little smaller than me, and myself doubling kids. And sometimes he doubled the girl and I doubled the boy. (laughs) (laughs) Or we switch it up. But we doubled every kid in town. I mean, it just kept me working. I was, you know, and like I said, working for Irwin Allen for like five years. It was my my beginnings was very solid. I learned so much while I was working. Um, it it couldn't have been any better. I've talked to a lot of stunt performers. I know a lot of stunt performers here in New York, and uh, you know, I know a lot of them who are women who are female stunt performers. And I know things have changed a lot uh, since you know you got your start in the industry to where they are today. But uh, in my opinion, I think the women do have a lot harder time doing the stunts because quite often you could talk about this. You know, they're doubling for people who, let's say, aren't wearing a lot of clothing. They might be doubling for someone wearing a dress who's running around in high heels, and you got to still now get hit by a car and take a flat back fall. So, you know, talk to me about, I guess, some of the harder parts of your job, and especially with being a woman in this industry where you basically got to hit the ground real hard. Been there, done that as far as (laughs) wearing high heels and running in front of a car. And, you know, um, it it was interesting, and it still is. I mean, today, thank God. We have elbow and knee pads that and hip pads that are thinner. They're like silicone and they're thin. And when you hit the ground, they get hard. Hmm. In those days, you were wearing baseball, kids baseball or real, you know, grown up baseball knee pads and elbow pads. And they were big and thick. And the guys could wear them because their clothes, they had, you know, long pants. They were loose. They, the jackets, girls would wear, you know, either really skinny sleeves and you'd see or skinny pants and you'd see the pads so we'd have to take them off and like you said we were either wearing a dress or god knows what and at the time you just have you just couldn't wear the pads you had to take them off um and today it's basically not much different it's a little better because like i said the the new pads we wear are way better than before and they actually came from ice skaters mm. from the they, the ice skater pads were much thinner and um that's kind of where they were developed from which was really good um but yeah you we had a hard time wearing wearing pads actually i'll tell you a funny story um i did a lot of stair falls mm-hmm. and that was one of the problems is the, the pads would show Yep. So I went and had a wetsuit made that was like an eighth inch thick. And I could wear it under my clothes and it didn't show. And it took the curse off of it, off the stairs. Hmm. So, 
And I don't know why I even thought of that. I couldn't even tell you, but I remember going, I'm just going to go buy a wetsuit, have it made for me. And literally that's what it was for. It was for stair falls and nothing else. And it works like a charm. That's a really smart idea. <laughs> yeah, it really is. I mean, it, it's things we've learned that we learned the hard way. Mm. But what the problem is with a lot of kids today, they don't want to ask the older people anything. They think they know it all. You know, not all of them. Some of them are great, but there's a lot that think they know it all and they get hurt. And it's, it's a shame because we've been through that. You know, we know. And the one thing the boys always taught me was check your rigging. Make sure that you are safe, that you understand how it's rigged, and don't rely on anything or what anybody tells you. Go watch when they rig it. Ask questions. Don't be afraid to say no. It's your life. Mm. and. That was one of the things that has saved my life, actually, more than once. I think that's something I've heard a lot is uh, a lot of folks who are, you know, young up and comers in the stunt industry, you know, it is a dog eat dog world. And if they want to get a job, they have to say, oh, yeah, I can totally do this. I can totally do that. But if you say that and don't know how to do it, you're going to get hurt or killed. Yeah, exactly. And not to now take this conversation a different kind of tangent, but, um, you know, I am curious to know what was the most dangerous stunt that you've ever done? Oh, boy. This might be a multiple part answer, huh? <laughs> yeah. I did bring them back alive, which was a TV series with Bruce Boxleitner. And um, I, I guess I tell this story a lot because it was kind of dangerous, more than kind of dangerous. Um, I got to work and I was doubly an Asian girl, which they try not, they, you try to keep everything even. Like if, you know, if you're white, you're double a white girl. If you're Asian, you're double an Asian girl and on and on and on. So all the, everything stays, gives everybody an opportunity to work. Well, at that time, they didn't think there was anybody qualified to do what I had to do. We were at Indian Dunes, which is where the Twilight Zone accident happened. And I was a hundred feet in the air. They had a motorcycle rigged off, off the side of the cliff. 100 feet up and they had what was happening was the, the bike is supposed to drop and explode after Bruce swings over grabs me we swing back the drop and the bike drops and explodes so they I get there get dressed and I'm looking at this thing and saying I want to go see how it's rigged oh it's perfectly fine it's we had a, a professional mountain climber rig this it's it's so safe, it's not funny. I said, I'm not getting on it until I see it. Well, they were not happy with me. If they could have gotten somebody else, they probably would have. But it was too late. and Because it took 20 minutes to get up to the other side of the hill to get up there. And um, they finally agreed to it because I absolutely refused to get on it. And I called um, Gary Epper, who was doubling Bruce, to, you know, to do the repelling. And um, he had just gotten dressed and I said, we're going to go look at this. And he went, oh, okay. So they took us up to the other side of the mountain. We got up there and they had this um, huge eye hook in the ground. The motorcycle with it, with the release strip is in it. Our repelling line is in it. And there is no backup ties on anything. And 
Thank God there was enough repelling line just sitting on the ground wrapped in a, you know, coil sitting there. And there was a tree close enough. We took the repelling line and wrapped it around the tree and not tied it, double knot. So we had a backup on the, as far as we were concerned. When we came back down, they took the cherry picker, got me back up on, on the motorcycle, hanging off the side of the cliff. And Gary's on the repelling line over here, waiting to swing over and grab me. Now we used to swing like this and he used to swing back like that. They roll the camera. He swings over and grabs me and we swing back like that. We just went, we had to go down 10 feet. Wow, so just straight down. Straight down. And we're hanging, holding onto the side of the cliff. The motorcycle has dropped and exploded and the mountain is shale and it's coming off in our hands. Oh. And it's interesting how you think. I mean, all I can, I'm looking up and thinking, oh my God, the repelling line is wrapped up in some weeds or something, you know. And I looked down and said, get us down now. And the whole crew, literally, it, this had to be seconds. It did not feel like seconds, was looking up with their mouth open. And Gary yelled. And I mean, like, I mean, it took seconds. And they, they got us down. I hope came out of the ground. So if it wasn't for our backup tie, I wouldn't be talking to you today. There's no way I could, neither one of us could have made it down that mountain. So that was pretty dangerous. But like I said, you know, it's, you learn, mm-hmm. you know, and I've learned to say no, you know, or pass on something. Um, and it's not, you know, people, like you said, the kids are afraid they're never going to work again if they say no. You get more respect by saying no than hurting yourself. Mm. You know, um, when they did roller coaster and the earthquake hits it, the, the roller coaster goes flying, you know, down. And I had that job to be on the roller coaster. There was five people on the roller coaster and we were at Universal and they said, the stunt coordinator said, do you want to, you know, be in the sidecar? When it gets to the top, everybody has to jump off. We got pads on the floor and, you know, on the ground and everything. And I said, yes. Well, Mickey Gilbert, who was one of my mentors, called me and said, Sandy, let me ask you something. If you get, if you by any chance, and he didn't know I took the job, said, if you by any chance get this job on roller coaster, do me a favor and don't take it. I have a bad feeling about that. He said, you've got split seconds to get away from that car at the top. Because once it starts down, once it's tilted, it's sucking you into the car and you cannot get away from it. And I went, well, I already took the job. And he went, please do to turn it down. And I said, okay. And I called the stunt coordinator and I said, if you don't mind, I, I want to pass on this job. And he said, oh, okay, no problem. We've got lots of people that want to be on it. And I said, okay. Everybody on that car got hurt. Every single, all five of them. And I mean hurt bad. Nobody was able to get out of the car. It rode, they had to ride to the bottom. And when it hit the bottom, it spit them out like ragdolls. And it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. So, 
you know, if I if something doesn't sound good, just say no. You know, I'll pass on this one. We'll do the next one. I mean, just hearing the story about the uh, motorcycle incident alone, that just is like, even for me, giving me traumatic experiences, it feels like. Uh, and and you know, I've always wondered about this with a lot of stunt performers is you guys are literally putting your lives on the line for entertainment. And you're asked to do all sorts of crazy things that normally human being would never, ever want to do. And you guys <laughs> agree to do these things. And how do you mentally, you know, physically is one thing, but how do you mentally cope with what you're doing? Because the fact is, anytime you do something, even even just a stair fall, you could break your neck and that's it for you, not just your career, but your life. How do you deal with that trauma of just the everyday job that you do? I don't think about that part of about getting hurt. I think more about what my physical body has to do to to get through the day or through the job. And you definitely get an adrenaline rush. And that and for me, that adrenaline rush makes me pay attention. Um, it's not like being, oh, I'm scared to death. I can't do this. That's a whole different feeling. But the adrenaline makes you pay attention because when you don't have it, you're going to get hurt. And usually a lot of times the easiest stunt that you think, oh, I can do this is easy. And you're not really focusing that much on it. That's when you get hurt. Hmm. Um, There are places where I've gotten hurt. No fault of my own. I mean, um, I was doubling Holly Holly Hunter um, on a show where it was a TV show that she supposedly on drugs and she's up in the chemistry lab and she says, I can fly, I can fly. And she runs to the window and jumps out the window. And we're three stories up at an old school that's all brick on the outside with um, ledges on each floor that stick out. And we built a ramp to the window so that I can hit the glass. Um, and it's sugar glass. It'll break when I hit it. And we had um, an airbag out there for me. And the rule of thumb is when you make up, when you do a high fall, you're going to go out your body length plus one more. It's just what you're going to do. So we had the airbag where it was supposed to be. And I have a fear of not getting out far enough. I don't know why, but when I'm even when I'm coordinating somebody else to do it, if that space between the wall and the airbag that usually you you don't put anything there, I fill with boxes. I take 12 by 12 boxes. I, I make them and I put them in that space. And I don't care if it's me doing the job or somebody else. If I'm running the show, those boxes are going to be there. Necessary to help break the fall? Just in case mm-hmm. something happens. Yeah. Okay. I came out that window. And what happened was the special effects man put a Venetian blind on the window and the inside of the glass and said, don't touch it. It's on with double face tape. And Benny Dobbins, who was a stunt coordinator, and myself both said, okay, because we were going to touch, we were ready to touch it. Said, oh my God, it's going to fall off. Don't touch it. So we listened to him. I hit that window. I broke the glass. I was outside the building, wrapped in that Venetian blind because it did not come off the window. And it sucked me back up against the wall. And you talk about, it's really interesting. Time slows down in your brain. And 
I watched it on tape. It happened very fast. But in my head, I came out the window and went, oh, shit. And all I could think about was hitting my head on these these things coming down. I turned. I grabbed my head with my elbow, like just like this, and started down the wall, hitting my back, hitting the jets, you know, the, the ledges on each floor, went straight to the boxes, never made it to the bag, broke my ribs with my elbow because I was holding onto my, you know, I came, I literally hit the boxes in a sitting position and my elbow broke my ribs and <laughs> the director it's going, everybody's going, are you all right? Are you all right? And of course, you're, you know, thumbs up. I'm fine. <laughs> and the stunt coordinator came over and the director's yelling, can we do it again? I didn't, that wasn't what was supposed to happen. And, and Benny was like, oh my God, <laughs> he was not happy. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and he said, are you all right? And I said, if, we, if we're doing it again, I have to do it right now. But if we wait, I can't do it. Because I could hardly, I could hardly talk. So we went back upstairs and he, he was really didn't want me to do it. And I said, I'm okay. I can do this as long as we do it now. And he went up and ripped that thing off of the wall, <laughs> threw it across the room. And we put a new glass in. Um, I hit the window. It came out perfect. Guess which one they used? I'm going to go with the first one. Yeah. Cause it looked horrendous, <laughs> but, um, those boxes, it's that, you know, that's something that the kids don't think about. I mean, and and it's a, it's a horrible thing to even bring up. But on Fear um, Walking Dead, one of our stunt younger stunt people got killed. He came, he had to come, they had a fight to do. And then he had to get thrown over the balcony and go to the ground, which was, well, I don't know, 20 or 30 feet to the ground. 30 feet, I think it was. Um, and he put his airbag out where he's supposed to. And there was nothing between the airbag and the wall. And when he came over the balcony, he got caught up on the balcony and literally was holding on with one hand hanging from the balcony and couldn't hold on and fell to the ground and died. Now, if the boxes were there, he would have been fine. I mean, he would have been sore or maybe broken something, but he wouldn't have died. You know, so those are, there's just tricks that the kids don't know about. You know, they don't think about. They just go, oh, logic says this. Well, this isn't logic that we're doing. So on a less serious note, now that we've gone from uh, serious injuries, trauma, and death, uh, I want to ask you something a little bit happier now. And uh, that would just be, you know, we've already mentioned you've doubled for tons of people in in the industry. Uh, We mentioned Debbie Reynolds as one of them. Uh, I'm curious to know, because I've heard a lot of folks who have done doubling in the stunt industry, and they've told me, you know, some of the stars they work with are wonderful. Others are absolute jerks. Uh, I'd love <laughs> to know, you know, for you, who would you say was like the most warm, receptive and like appreciative uh, for, for a person that you doubled for? Debbie Reynolds, Debbie Reynolds, Debbie Reynolds, 100,000 times over. She was she was the kind of person that would not leave the set. You know, I'm going, Debbie, go sit down, go rest. No, 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 I'm OK. I'm here. And. I and she that's why I got to double her so much. In fact, um when she did these old broads, the TV show um with Shirley McLaine and um oh my god, there was, you know, 
Liz Taylor was in it. I mean, there was just amazing people. I got to stunt coordinate the show and double her. And, um, I mean, she's, she was wonderful. She was just the most wonderful person in the world. But, um, I've been very blessed with the people I've doubled. Um, Betty White, you know, I mean, I was going to ask you about Betty. I got to hear stories about that off the rocker. Oh my God. She's just amazing. You know, um, I did, you know, off the rockers. I did several of those shows and I actually doubled her on, um, my name is Earl. Um, where she had to fall down the stairs in a, in a sack. And I did that for her. Um, but yeah, she's, I mean, those people are incredible when, um, funny story, when I doubled Floris Leachman on, um, raising, she's so funny because I did Malcolm in the middle with her first, right? And I doubled her on Malcolm and she was fine with no big deal. And I had pictures of her and I together. Well, now I'm going to go do Raising Hope. And it's, we're doing the Halloween show. And, um, it's the first show, the first episode. <laughs> and she comes over to me and goes, and is the loudest voice she can. You can't double me. You're too short. I can't believe they had you doubling me. I'm like, Chorus, I've doubled you before. No, you haven't. I had to go get my cell phone and show her the picture of her and me on Malcolm in the Middle. <laughs> oh, okay. Now, this doing this as loud as she can. <laughs> so now I do the job. And a week later, I'm, I'm on this show doing the next episode. And I'm going to do something else. And I'm dressed as her. And here she comes. <laughs> and she grabs me by the wrist. And she says, come here. And I went, oh, God, now what? <laughs> and now this she doesn't say loud. She said this to me very quietly in a corner. I just want to tell you, you did a great job. I saw that and you were so good. Thank you so much. Why didn't she yell that? But she didn't. <laughs> but she was funny. I mean, I would be, there was one sh- one part of that show where I was sitting in the chair and I had to fall backwards out of the chair at the dinner table, doubling her, and the camera is behind me. And they roll the camera, and they go, action, and here she comes. And she says, hold on a second, we have to fix her hair. And she's fixing my hair in the front to look like her, and I'm thinking, they're not going to see the front. (laughs) And they sat there very quietly and just waited until she was done. (laughs) She was a pistol, let me tell you. You know, she... With all the crazy she did, she had a heart of gold. She really did. And I had so much fun on that show. But um, she would drive people crazy because, you know, she, that's just the way she was. Um, but, you know, I don't remember. I never had trouble with anybody. I was coordinating one of the shows. And I had Jeannie Epper come in to double um, the lead. and. Um, G.D. Epper was top stunt lady, top, top stunt lady. And um, the, the actress comes to me, and she, she, was, she was not young. She's an older lady, not old, middle, middle-aged. Um, and she said, I'm doing my own stunt. I don't need a stunt court. I don't need a stunt person. I said, but I've got G.D. Epper here to double you. I don't care. I'm doing my own stunt. And basically what it was is she goes to cross the street, the car comes up and literally... Stops within inches of her. 
I said, I'll tell you what, let's do the rehearsal. And she, I mean, she was adamant about this. And uh, I said, let's just do the rehearsal. Let me show you what's going to happen with Jeannie. And if you still want to do it, we'll work it out. Because I, the stunt, the driver was a stunt man that I knew really well that I'd hired too. So we had Jeannie do the rehearsal. And she looked at it and went, let Jeannie do it. <laughs> because until you see it, you don't, you don't know what it's, you know, you think, oh, well, I can do this. This is easy. And 90% of our actresses and actors also can do the stunts. We're not saying you cannot do it. But how many times can you do it? Because normally, you don't do a stunt once. You do it three to five or six times. And that's where it gets dangerous. And yes, an actor can do it once. But how many times do you want to hit the ground? You know, and God forbid you get hurt. They don't have a show anymore. You know, and then the insurance companies also, if it's something crazy, the insurance companies step in and say, you're they're not doing this because they have to have them finish the movie. Yeah, she was adamant about doing this. And Shirley MacLaine is adamant about doing her own stunts. You know, um, funny, funny story about Shirley. <laughs> um, I did these old bras with her and, you know, she kept trying to talk Debbie into doing her own stunts. And she finally talked her into one of the gags. She says, I'm doing the fight on this side. You have, you're going to do it the other side. Cause I'd usually have a stunt person in over their shoulder doing the close up of the actor and vice versa, you know, reverse this. So all Debbie had to do was walk out of the trailer and they had to do a little pushy thing. But Debbie's wearing mesh hose and this little short jacket. And I said, Debbie, don't do it. It's asphalt. We're on the ground outside. No, it's okay. And this is the only time she'd ever argued with me. Shirley said, it's okay. We're going to, we're going to do the two of us will do it. I said, when you get hurt, if you get hurt, don't you, don't you say one word to me? I'm not going to get hurt. I said, okay. Well, she slipped on the asphalt, hit her knee. We cut. I ran over to her. She's bleeding. Scraped her knee up really good. She looked up at me and she said, don't you say a word. <laughs> and I went, just let's get cleaned up and let's, you know, she never, she never listened to Shirley after that. And Shirley was apologizing until she was purple. And then about a year later, Shirley's doing Orange County, which they changed the name to something else. And I get a phone call from the, um, production manager who knew me and said, Shirley's got to do this driving thing. And I know you're not tall enough, but in the car, they'll never see the, they'll never see. So come on in and double Shirley for us. And I went, okay. So they get me all dressed up as Shirley McLean. You're going to laugh at this one. And she's got these like cat eye glasses on and the whole thing. And the first assistant director comes over to me who doesn't know me and says, now listen, when Shirley gets out here, don't talk to her. She's very difficult. And I don't want you, you know, talking to her. Let her just, you know, you'll get in the car and you'll do your thing. And I went, okay. So I'm leaning on the car and they call Shirley out and she's walking on the set and she has to be quite a ways from me. And she's walking towards me and she goes, 
as loud as she can, oh my God, Sandy, and runs towards me and gives me this big hug. <laughs> I'm so glad it's you. I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> the crew is like, oh my God, what just happened? Everybody started laughing. I mean, it was funny because they didn't expect that at all. You're the Shirley MacLaine whisperer. Yeah, she and I got along great. You know, it was, we had worked before and she knew me and, you know, so it was great. Hey, everybody. We'll get right back to the interview in one second, but I wanted to remind you all to check out Trek Untold over at Patreon. Patreon is the best way to directly support creators of things you like through a monthly subscription of an amount that you can choose. Trek Untold has a few different tiers already with different benefits, ranging from early access to episodes, the ability to ask a future guest questions, exclusive merchandise, and other bonuses that I'd love to offer, but first I need to grow that Patreon community to do that. Trek Untold has been around since mid-2020 and has grown a ton since then, thanks to listeners and viewers like you. Through a platform like Patreon, you can help me keep improving the quality of each episode and keep bringing you new interviews with folks that make the Star Trek universe what it is. If this community can grow more over on Patreon, I can offer new perks like watch parties, exclusive Trek Untold episodes, being able to directly interact with guests, and other things, but in order to do that, I need to know my audience wants these things. The best way to tell me what you want is by supporting us on Patreon, so please, Check us out at patreon.com slash trekuntold today and become a bigger part of the Trek Untold family. And now, back to the interview. Well, Sandy, let's beam back into our Star Trek talk because you did some other work on Star Trek. And most notably, the one that I think everybody remembers is you as the salt monster, the creature (laughs) from planet M113 from the episode The Man Trap. So let's take this one from the top here. How did you land this gig? And why did you agree to go into this giant monster costume? Well, I had been doing Lost in Space and been playing monsters on Lost in Space. I played the giant fly. I played, you know, the alien kid from another planet. So I was always, they put me in costumes a lot. And so when they called for me to go do that, Paul Cater had said, yeah, let her do, let her go do that. So when I went over there, they had to make a plaster um, cast of my face to get this mask, to, you know, and head thing to fit me perfectly. And, you know, and took measurements. They built the costume for me. Wow. So now they've got the costume made and we go, you know, to sit, to shoot. And they put me in the costume and they put the headgear on and sew the head to the costume. And the suckers that suck the salt are longer than my fingers. The suckers start from my fingers out. So they're, they're out here, what I have to touch Shatner's face with. And the mask that they built, you can't see out of it. It's literally got little tiny slits in the eyes. So there's no peripheral vision. You can't see the floor. You can, all you can see is what's straight ahead of you. So now we, we, the lady playing or the actress playing Nancy does her thing. And now she's supposed to morph into me so the way they did it in those days they put a plate in front of the lens and they would have her stand real still and they would draw her body take her out and then put me in that space that they just drew take that plastic off and then we would roll the cameras and shoot and they do that vice versa when i would turn back into her Hmm. this took a long time we ended up i think we shot it at least a week with this back and forth stuff 
So now I have to walk to him and take the salt and hit him, you know, take the suckers of salt to kill him. I can't see number one. And number two, when you go to reach for somebody, you reach for your with your hands. Well, the suckers are hitting the back of his head and slapping him in the face. Thank God he was in a good sport in those days. So you're just literally slapping William Shatner with tentacle fingers. Yes. Yes. Because I I mean I I, I couldn't get to, I couldn't find it. And we would we tried it two or three times at least. And I just I I couldn't get the right spacing because I couldn't see. And I finally said, guys, this we gotta take the head off. You gotta just take the head off. Give let me let me see where I'm going. Let me count, let me get the end mark set up with the suckers on his face and walk back, count the steps away. So I know how many steps I need to get to him to get to the right position. And they agreed. And um, Gene Roddenberry agreed. He said, that sounds logical. Do it. And so they unstowed the whole thing, took it off. And that's what we did. You know, I took my end mark. I counted my steps backwards. Um, we redressed me. I took my, I counted my head, how many steps it took to get to my end mark. I put my hands up and it was perfect. But um, it wasn't perfect when we started. That's a really great lesson, though, about being assertive as a stunt performer, and especially a young stunt performer, like being willing to say, hey, I can't do this. Let me find a way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, there was no stunt coordinator on the set either when I was doing this. Today, the rule of thumb is you have to have a stunt coordinator on the set, even if there's just one stunt person there. In those days, if you were by yourself, you kind of coordinated yourself. So if the stunt, if I'm on a set and, the stunt, and I don't feel comfortable and I have a stunt coordinator, I will go to the stunt coordinator and say, I'm having problems. Can you, what do you think we should do? Um, and talk to him and he'll, you know, work it out together. And then he'll go to the director and say that we need to change this. Let's, let's set it up this way. Um, but in those days, I had to open my mouth because there was no stunt coordinator on the set. So we know that you've done a ton of work in costumes like on Lost in Space and now here on Star Trek too. though. But I'm kind of curious to know, how did the salt monster compare to those other creatures you played? I mean, what did you think of this bizarre looking thing? <laughs> you know, I knew it was a pretty horrifying costume at the time, yeah. which is interesting because when I do these, you know, I do the cons, the conventions. The guys would come to me and say, I was 11 years old and you really scared me. You know, but when you're inside a costume, you don't think of yourself as being scary. But uh, I guess I was. Um, that costume, that costume was a little difficult, but, um, the Battlestar Galactica costume was much more difficult, much more difficult. Um, when I played the Ovion, ant-like creature um in the pilot of you know of that but um the star trek it was hot mm. you know um and after a while it starts to feel heavy even when it's not but um it was quite you know interesting and like i said you had to keep working back and forth and you couldn't take it off while you were you know during the day it just it just took too long to put it back together again so um it was it was difficult, but um, like I said, I think the the hardest one was the um, Battlestar Galactica Ovion Sea Tall that I played. 
Well, you can't just tease me with that. You got to tell me more about that character. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Sital was an ant-like creature. And they were miners on this planet. So basically, three months before we started shooting, um, myself and one other girl went to Industrial Light and Magic. And they built the costume there. And they had a guy from UCLA Prosthetics come with to to strap on the extra set of arms. You know, we had four arms, but we we had to learn how to make the phony arms move like our real arms. So they had my real arm and a phony arm, and my my real arm was down, so they were opposite. You know, so you had one on one side and. Like one, the upper arm was mine and the lower arm was mine on, um, you know, on the costume. We, I got so good with, he taught us how to move your muscle to get the bony arms to move, just like someone that didn't have arms. Hmm. And, and it was strapped on your body tight. So all I had to do was squeeze, squeeze my muscles and get the arm to come up. And I got so good at it, I could literally, with the phony arm, pick up a glass of water, pick it up, and take a drink and put it down. So when we went on set, you were when you were mining, you had one real arm and one phony arm working together, mining, and you literally made that arm do what it needed to do. And that you couldn't see out of that costume either. <laughs> I don't know what it was about the eyes. They did like they gave us a little bit more, and then. There's actually a picture. I have a picture with that head off. And they what they did is they put big black rims around my face and my eyes and really dark makeup on so that if you could see through the the eyes of the ant, you wouldn't see anything because it had, you know, it's all blacked out. Um, but you could actually take that head off and go to lunch, <laughs> which was great. But um that costume was hard because they would stick you underground, you know, because they under the stage and you'd be on a hydraulic lift, which was not very big. And they'd have you standing on this hydraulic lift and then they would lift you up to the stage and you'd have to walk off the hydraulic lift onto the stage and, you know, do your thing. Um, so it was it was pretty complicated. And then um, I think we shot one or two weeks and um the two producers decided they were going to fight and the one producer that built the costume at industrial who owned industrial light and magic had built the costume and the other producer decided if we were so intelligent we should not be walking around naked so he put monk robes over this $10,000 costume that we had on. You couldn't see the costume. And so we shot another week. And I guess they made up because they called a halt to production, <clears throat> took the monk robes off, and made some kind of compromise where they had, if you watch, look at the costume, it had open uh, rope-like knitting for a drape over the costume where you could still see the costume, but it looked like we were wearing something. <laughs> then we reshot everything we shot and went back and shot everything new. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
So that was um that I ended up working a long, long time on that movie because of that. But it's okay, I made a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> so Sandy, you are also a part of Star Trek history and a part of Star Trek history, not just as a performer, but as a piece of merchandise. Because Assault Vampire has had masks, you've had Hallmark ornaments, and what I'm most concerned with is the action figures. And uh, you know, normally on this show, I like to ask the actors, like, hey, you have an action figure yourself. What do you think about it? Do you think it looks like you? All that kind of stuff. But this is a toy of you as a monster. So I'm just curious to know, like, what do you think of the fact that you have action figures of yourself portraying Assault Vampire? I think it's pretty cool, actually. <laughs> um, the um, Hallmark, um, when they did, is really neat because it talks also. And actually, I have one on my Christmas tree at Christmas time. I didn't give one away. It was like mine. Um, and the action figure, it's not bad. It is, it's really not bad. In fact, um, when I did um, uh, Long Island, the Trek Long Island that we just did in New York, um, I brought some with me and sold them. And I just actually did Huntsville, Alabama this last weekend and sold about five or six of them with, you know, signing them. Um, and there's but one of the the guys I work out with um, bought me one quite a while ago, and I have it, and I'm keeping it. That one doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> that was mine. But it's it's kind of cool. I mean, you know, you look at the the toys that they're made, you know, of of the other big actors and stuff, and I'm like, I've got my own toy. <laughs> yeah, I think at some point you were actually supposed to have even more toys, if I'm remembering this correctly, because I believe, and you can help maybe uh, refresh my memory here, I believe that Playmates back in the 90s was going to do a version of you in their like four inch line. I don't know if you recall anything of that. And I believe Art Asylum was supposed to do a seven inch version of you as well. And that also never got produced. Did you remember ever seeing or hearing about those? No, I never even heard about that. Um, I do know that on, was it um, Trek, Trekana, Trekatama? Uh, Trekondoroga? Yeah, that's it. The one that James does. Yep. Um, he had Assault Vampire at the entrance to the door. A full-size one? Yeah. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> I don't know if it's still there or not, but he had that for a while. And when um, when I was just in Alabama, one of the guys had done the um, Star Trek um, cruise this last year, and he showed me um, a picture of a Salt Vampire standing in the, you know, it wasn't real, standing in a the corner. They've got this big Salt Vampire hanging out you know, on the boat. And I was like, I want to do that. I want to do the boat. <laughs> We've been trying to get in touch with the right people to maybe be a guest on um, the, the Trek cruise. Um, Nana Visitor is actually doing it. And I actually talked to her and she's going to try to see um, who to talk to to possibly get on it. That To me, that would be really cool. Um, the other thing I did book, which is not Star Trek, but it's Elvis. There is an Elvis cruise um, next year in October that goes to Hawaii that I'm doing that they just booked me on. So I get to talk about Elvis Presley and all of that stuff for that cruise and sell my book. And So that's going to be October 2024 for anybody who wants to go check that out. For any of the Elvis fans out there listening to this show right now. And I know there probably are some out there. So uh, it's worth it just to meet Sandy. <laughs> yeah, and if anybody knows how to get me on that other on the uh, Trek cruise, I really would like to do that. Yeah, you you absolutely need to be on that ship. Uh, and I I get a little scared by when you said, "Oh, that's that's not a real salt vampire." I'm like, "Are there real salt vampires out there now?" So 
Now I can't go to sleep at night. Thank you for that, Sandy. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> now my people throw salt at me. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what you should sell at your table at cons is like kosher salt shakers in the shape of the salt vampire. Oh my gosh, that's what they should do. <laughs> <laughs> Someone has to do that. I feel like that's a new business venture for us to go into, but we'll talk after the show about that. that would be <laughs> So, Sandy, I got a few last questions now before we wrap things up here. Uh, and this is my, I call it my lightning round, but every guest I talk to, they're like, these are not lightning questions. We hate you for asking these things. So uh, we're going to see how you survive these right now. So I'd like to ask you first, what was the best day you ever had in a set? And what was the worst day you ever had in a set? The best day I ever had in a set is actually between two things. One was um, airplane. When I played the Girl Scout for the Girl Scout fight in airplane. And since then, when I did work with Sasha Baron Cohen and did um, the Bata Awards when he got, when I gave him an award and nobody knew who I was, three and a half hours of makeup to make me look 104 and to be the last living person to ever work with Charlie Chaplin, even Selma Hyatt, I was sitting in the wheelchair waiting to go on the stage and Selma supposed to wheel me out. And she leaned down to me and she said, are you all right, dear? I literally had to bite my cheeks and go, I'm fine. Because nobody and nobody knew what was going to happen. And I'm sure you, some people, a lot of people have seen it on YouTube and on TikTok and on um, Inside Edition, which I just did a couple of weeks ago. Um, they had it on and they talked about me and... Um, they showed the clips and stuff. So that had to be the, the best day. I mean, that was even better than than um, Airplane, which was pretty darn good. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the worst day? Oh, my gosh. Um, it turned out to be good, but it was probably the scariest thing I've done, which was I had a bungee jump backwards out of a hot air balloon 200 feet in the air. And I had never bungee jumped in my life. And um, I went out with the guys in the morning that rigged it, Bungee America. We went over all the rigging and they told me what could go wrong and all of that. Um, that was hard. That was really hard. And um, I did that jump four times. And the first time was my fault because I bent my knees coming out of the hot air balloon and the camera lost me. And then um, the other two were perfect. And I sat down, you know, because we still had to put me on a crane. It was Kellogg's Fruit and Fiber commercial. And I had, they had to drop me into the stand where the guy was eating his Kellogg's Fruit and Fiber and grab the box and bounce out. And so, you know, they're fussing around for about an hour. And they come to me and they go, can we do this one more time out of the hot air balloon? And I went, yeah. Meanwhile, I talked about adrenaline. I had none left. And the one thing that Bungie America told me was watch the bungee cord because the worst thing that can happen is it can come in and wrap you around the throat and kill you. That's what they said to me. Well, we went up the fourth time. I came and I have to go backwards and go with a spoon in my hand and say, yes. I went back so straight. I did a 360 degree revolution in the air. And I'm coming down and the cord is coming at me. I put my arm up to stop the cord. It hit me in the leg. You can imagine how 100,000 rubber bands hitting you at the same time feel like. 
And then you're bouncing in the air. You can't even get out. So they got me down and my girlfriend who was filming it, um, you know, for me, came over and I said, get me some ice and get it now. And I had a hematoma on my leg that was like a baseball. So that that was really not fun. I'm kind of just personally amazed that you somehow topped your story from bringing back alive with this one right now, because uh, this <laughs> is more harrowing. <laughs> I don't know how you do what you do, Sandy. Uh, you're amazing. But <laughs> um, how about something that you know today that you wish you knew when you first started? That I wish I knew. Wow, that's a hard one, because I was so blessed. I was so blessed when I first started. I mean, I had guys looking out for me, taking care of me, making sure that I paid attention and learned. I got things that most people today don't get. You know, I went on to coordinate. I was the first stunt woman ever to get her director's card. I broke glass ceilings for women today, um, which I'm real proud of. And I, you know, um, I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, I know I try not to ride. I I don't take motorcycle jobs because I'm too short and I have trouble reaching the ground. I took one and we made it work, but never again will I do that. We have girls that ride bikes that are phenomenal and I don't need to ride a bike. But um, no, I, I don't know what to tell you with that question because... You know, I was very diff- very lucky when I started. That's fair enough. Uh, how about, this is a similar kind of idea, but I think a different take on it. Um, how about the most memorable piece of advice that you received from someone that you still think about or use today? Check your rigging. That's got to be it. Check your rigging. Ask questions. Pay attention. Go watch when the guys put it together. You know, just, you know, you're not in the way. You're not getting in their way, but you're you're there you're watching you're paying attention don't sit in that stupid dressing room stay on the set i feel like that bit of advice could also be like adjusted for everyday real life scenarios too like you know check your rig and always be aware of yourself um there's probably a way i can make it sound really lofty if we wanted to you know i'm a fourth degree black belt in taekwondo from billy blanks and you learn a lot of self-defense you learn you know a lot about paying attention focusing and like you said, everyday life, people walk around and have no clue what's going on around them. And in this day and age, especially, you better know what's happening around you. You better know what's going on because you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, they, people follow you home. You know, I mean, when I come down my street to go home, I know if there's something behind me or not. And I know if somebody's parked in front of my house sitting in their car, you know, I, I pay attention, you know, and on the freeway, I know where the cars are. I never, I don't let a car pace me. Like, so they're pacing right next to you. I don't let that happen. You know, there's just all kinds of little things that you have to pay attention to that people just don't, they're talking on their phone and they're, you know, got their earphones on and they're walking around and some guy comes up behind them and, you know, God knows what can happen. And by the way, had I known that you have uh, your black belt from Billy Blanks, I would have totally been asking you questions about Billy Blanks, because I think he's like one of the most underrated action stars. And uh, did you ever actually get to work with him on a film as well? No, I never got to work with him on a film. I got to work with him in the dojo. I taught, you know, some of the kids for him. Um, 
got all my black belts from him. Total respect, total, total respect for this man. Uh, That's very cool. Now, here's a big heavy one for you, Sandy. What do you want to be for the legacy of Sandy Gimpel? (laughs) My legacy. Oh, my gosh. You know, I'm a stunt lady. That's who I am. You know, I'm granted I'm a mom and I love my daughter more than life itself. But um, I'm a stunt lady. You know, it's what I love. It's what I do. I don't ever want to retire. Um, I'm going to keep doing this until my body won't let me. Um, I, you know, I just did um, CSI Vegas that aired, what, four, five weeks ago now. That's who I am. And that's pretty remarkable, too, by the way, because I wanted to ask you, I mean, you're you're still working, which is, to me, astounding. You were just in, I know, the Weird Al Yankovic movie, which I saw recently. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're still doing stuff. I mean, I don't understand how you're able to do this, but wow, congratulations to you for being able to do it. But like, yeah, like, do you ever really plan on stopping? Let, let's be realistic here. Will you ever actually stop? Or are you going to be taking bookings even if you're in a wheelchair? I'm never going to be in a wheelchair unless they're pushing me off the stage. <laughs> <laughs> but um I'm going to work till I can't work. I mean, I, it's what I do. It's who I am. And I work out three to five days a week. Um, I eat as healthy as I can. I screw up like everybody else does and drink my wine once in a while. But um, as long as I, you know, I mean, I've had my knee replaced. I've had my hip replaced. Um, my left knee still has to be taken care of, but thank God today they can make you bionic. <laughs> but um, you know, I, I love what I do. I mean, if everybody loved what they did as much as I do, we live in a much better world. I I think. <laughs> and last question for you today, Sandy. What's the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? I get to go to all these places and talk to all these amazing, regular, normal people. Well, they're not really normal. They're Star yeah, I'm Trek. totally normal. Thanks for that compliment. <laughs> There's Trekkies. But... I have met some amazing, nice, wonderful people by going to these conventions. I can't tell you how much fun that is. Um, you know, they're all you're all asking me questions, and I'm always asking you guys, what what did you how did you get involved in this? And you know, what do you do for a living now? And and how many people have said to me, Oh, well, I became a doctor or I became an astronaut or I became a lawyer because of what I watched. On Star Trek, it influenced me as a kid to for my career. And I'm always so interested in that. And and that's made me, it's like, wow, you know, who would have thought? You know, I I went to work, I came home, I never thought about it. And Richard Arnold, who was Gene Roddenberry's assistant, was the one that got me into doing the con the conventions. And he said, we're doing, you know, the 50th anniversary and in Vegas, do you want to do it? And I went, I guess so. I don't know why, but sure. And I had no clue. I mean, I had no idea and I was blown away and I had so much fun. And now I've been lucky enough to go and do, you know, Long Island and uh, Indianapolis, Indiana, uh, God, I've been several places, which is just cool. And hopefully the next place you'll be for Star Trek will be on that cruise ship. If you go to my website, SandraGimpel.com, 
it's broken up with not only to buy my book, but you can buy pictures, autograph, and then there's different sections. And it also tells where I'm appearing. It'll say upcoming events and click on that and it'll give you all the upcoming events of what I'm going to be doing, which is, you know, I've been really proud of that. I had, uh, Bar- you know, Barbara Luna. Yep. Her husband actually helped me put the um, website together because I am a real geek when it comes to computers. I don't, I'm not good at it, but my website came out really good. I'm really proud of it. So we're going to have links once again for that and for the book in the show notes for this episode below. And, uh, you know, Sandy, I got to tell you, it's so cool that you're like so appreciative about the Star Trek community because you are a part of the history. And on top of that, too, I want to add, you know, a lot of what you and your fellow stunt community does, it's very much about being invisible. So that's why I'm very, very glad that you wrote your book and are going to have now more of your time in the spotlight. because It's well deserved. So once again, everybody, a reminder to check out Stunt Lady Falling for the Stars on Sandy's website. Uh, and learn much more about Sandra because we, we really barely got into things here. There's so much more to your career than just Star Trek and the little things we discussed. So highly recommend it. Um, so yeah, Sandy, it's been honestly an honor chatting with you because you are a true pioneer in the stunt industry. You've done so much for women and you know, for yourself as well, you've done so much too, but just for everybody else that you give them back to, you know, thank you for that. Uh, and the road that you really have paved for so many others following in your footsteps. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I mean, like I said, I just so glad that I've been able to do what I do, you know, and I'm very proud of the fact that I could have made open doors for stunt women in the future, which I absolutely did, you know, because in the 80s, it was very difficult for women. So, but thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you. And yeah, as I always like to say at the end of the show here, I'm going to, I'm going to make an amendment here, but it's always, you know, live long and prosper, but also live long and prosper and tuck your chin in so you don't break your neck. This is what I have a problem. See my fingers? They won't <laughs> Close enough. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much, Sandy. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. Thanks again for checking out Trek Untold. If you aren't already, please follow Trek Untold on social media, where you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, among others, all at Trek Untold. Don't forget to subscribe to us on YouTube for the video versions of this show at youtube.com slash at Trek Untold. And subscribe to us on whatever platform you're listening to the audio version on. We always appreciate likes, shares, comments, thumbs up, ratings, and reviews, and whatever you can do to help spread the word about this podcast and inform other Trekkies about why they need to check this show out. If you're able to financially support this show, visit patreon.com slash trekuntold to learn about the different ways you can contribute to keeping this show going full speed ahead. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz. This has been Trek Untold. And remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.